This is Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspective. Today, I'm going to talk about the permaculture principle, right placement, relative location. I often like to bring in the classic adage used in real estate to describe our approach as permaculture consultants and educators. And that is location, location, location. In many senses, permaculture design is no different than this understanding that says the most important thing about where you live and what makes for a good choice has to do with the location of it in relationship to your desired outcomes and being a beneficial place for what it is that you would like to achieve. And it is this dovetail between human desire, human goals, human aspirations and joy, and the fulfillment of life, and being able to have a cup, a vessel, that is suited to these objectives, these very beautiful and timeless aspirations of humanity. And what I'm going to talk about today is our role as a design firm, really, in the uh, world of consultation and how, as a consultant, I use this principle of right placement relative location. And I thought I would also share some uh, background of my own evolution in this discipline of permaculture by virtue of explaining that principle definition there. Right placement, relative location is also paraphrased as it's the connection that matters on my handout from my permaculture design course, which was in 1996 at the farm in Summertown, Tennessee, at the Eco Village Training Center at the farm, started by Albert Bates. And there in 1996, when I took the permaculture design certification course, it was being taught in two different sections, one called the Fundamentals, and a follow-up course about six months later called the Practicum. And they were both taught by Peter Bain, who is the publisher and editor of the Permaculture Activist, now called the Permaculture Design Magazine. And it is the only magazine on permaculture that has been published in North America for 30 plus years. And Peter Bain taught that course along with Chuck Marsh and Patricia Allison and Andrew Goodhart Brown, Arjuna. We had quite a crew of teachers. I think they had five teachers in all. And so I was at the time teaching at the school that I graduated from, and I graduated from it in 1986, and that school just recently closed about three years ago after 43 years of operation, and its name was Up Athena because it was started at a woman's house whose name was Tina, whose home was up a hill, so the school's name was Up at Tina, and they contracted it to become Up Tina. That school enabled me as a teacher, where I started teaching there after graduating from undergraduate college uh, in North Carolina. I went to a Quaker college called Guilford. And when I graduated from there, which 
As I traveled out west after my time in undergraduate college in North Carolina, I was doing work for a group called the Student Conservation Association. And for them, I was doing revegetation of native species in subalpine meadows for the U.S. Forest Service in the Mount Baker Snoqualmie Wilderness Area, which is the largest wilderness area in the United States, 11.3 million acres. And I have a great love for behavioral biology, for ecology, for water, and being close to water systems and spending a lot of time in rivers and streams, and a good amount of time advocating and helping to protect watersheds wherever I go and wherever I've lived. And this work of teaching about how do we care for the earth, can we learn to live well with the earth, is how I like to describe my mission as a teacher on this earth, is to help my fellow human beings learn how to live well with how this planet operates, and that's what I hope to achieve with these broadcasts for those of you listening. And with that in mind, as we move forward with our theme of right placement and relative location, I want to bring us back to the principles of permaculture and deepening our understanding of what they emerge from and how they are invaluable tools in our toolkit to retrofit, reskill, and re-inhabit the planet in a way that makes positive sense. And so the Earth is our location that we want to first contextualize our design perspective within and recognizing that we are on this planet that has certain finite, knowable, and empirical constraints. The Earth is 24,901 miles in circumference. To reiterate a few of them that are fundamental in defining our first principle of good design, which is also to recognize that the Earth is 70% covered in ocean and 30% in land, and that where we are latitudinally and longitudinally ultimately defines the reality of our landscape. And as a consultant, we perform a lot of really invaluable work for our clients, helping them to read the landscape so that as they move forward with living in a place, they know how to place elements correctly and in locations that have beneficial interrelationships. And this is what is meant by our first principle of it is the connection that matters. And so looking at where we are latitudinally, which is about 45 degrees on the planet, we are going to have very unique day lengths, whether we are looking at June 21st or December 21st. And these are the things that define plant communities. And when we read the landscape, we also want to take first in mind that the sun rising and setting is the baseline variable, and then the next parameter is going to be the geology of the place. 
And so again, for where we are, literally here at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ulster County in Ellenville, New York, which is more of a political definition of place, to get a little bit more geographic, we are in the lower Rondout River watershed, which is a sub-watershed of the Hudson River drainage. And in our location here, we help people all over a multi-county, multi-watershed area. We were just over in the Rhinebeck area walking a property that is 160 acres and there's an old boys' school that is about to become an art, science, and innovative restorative agricultural research center with our help in the layout and plan for that. And I wanted to talk about a particular experience on that consultation as a good example of the unique viewpoint that I bring to land analysis and landing the principles, not in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense. And we were looking at a part of this larger acreage where there had been an old cornfield. And now that cornfield has turned into a young forest, not really densely forested, more accurately described as a scattering of some tree saplings with a predominance of what are often uh, demonized plants that have, in my view, fortunately been able to take up camp in what is a highly degraded, denuded, and fragmented ecology. And those plants are often called invasives or exotic. And those are what were predominating this old cornfield that had been abandoned for probably about 50 years. So we're looking at what's called a field mosaic ecology, which is a way of describing this assemblage communities that will often see an abandoned agricultural landscape. And permaculture really brings this unique historical lens of rolling back the tape and asking the question broadly, what's been happening here over the last century, and then what's been happening here over the last 500 years, and then what's been happening here 10 to 20,000 years ago. And as we roll back that tape and look at this particular cornfield that we're talking about in Rhinebeck area, New York State, and the Hudson River drainage, we're talking about 100 years ago, a landscape that was, broadly speaking, the state of New York was somewhere around 80% deforested with a large amount of dairy farms and sheep farms. And this landscape we're talking about would have been cleared and grazing or a field crop. And it is today turning into a forest. And the client is asking me, should I clear it? Because the conservation easement that is held is saying, if I don't clear it soon, we're not going to let you ever clear it because it will be moving more towards what we will begin to define as a wild ecology. And so it is an interesting example of how there are both legal definitions by which we agree that a landscape has become wild, which has to do with the size of the trees and the type of the ecology that's there. And that 
process is one that also creates constraints for private property owners and tells them that in effect they need to make a decision about how they want to manage their property because all of the land in the Northeast inexorably moves towards becoming a more densely forested ecology over time. And so over the last hundred years, as an example of that, New York State and Vermont and most of the Northeast has returned to a percentage of more like 70 to 80 percent forest. And so given that hundred year perspective, you'll begin to understand why my advice to the client was, since it was well-drained, not a wetland, and had great southern exposure, my advice was to get some people in there with machines and logging equipment in the winter at the end of February before things have leaked out but there's no snow on the ground and clear that and bring it back into a highly productive southern exposed farm field that you can do all kinds of diversified creative agroecological recombinant ecologies that would never occur just because of nature doing what he wants to do because the thing that I often underscore to our students in our courses is this viewpoint that is very important to understand as to why do all this work to create permaculture landscapes can't we just let nature run the show well the reality is that if you really deeply understand evolution and our place in it and the what i mean by our place in it is our uh, participation in the process of what we see today around us in terms of the present landscape. We need to understand that we have created what our inheritance is. And we've created that inheritance through selecting for particular species. And that selection process has been, in the main, very heavy-handed, lacking finesse, and bludgeoning the landscape to get a few yields of single particular crops from it. Rather than looking at how we can have some subtlety and some beauty and more complexity in the landscape that requires greater participation and also, as it turns out, lo and behold, higher yields. And this is what the permaculture vision is based on. It's recognizing that by having a larger number of people involved in this beautiful act of gardening, we will begin to be able to grow truly high-quality, ecologically complex farm food. That's my thing. <clears throat> and I wanted to also share that in order to read the landscape, we need to be able pay attention to unconditioned, the conditioned mind. We need to recognize that, in fact, the perceiver is the perceived, as Heisenberg mentioned in time to look at subatomic particles and recognizing that, in fact, the human eye emits photons that affect the atom when it is attempted to be looked at by an observer. And the observer is the observed. And by this, what I'm getting at is that we need to recognize that in order to read the landscape, in order to see the positive role 
of creating the potential to grow food and raise animals and grow fruit trees and nut trees on this old cornfield that I'm talking about as our example here today. The reason that I give this advice to this property owner and say, in fact, due to the location where you are and the placement of this field in relationship to your farm buildings and the road that we're standing on, it is a good place to be growing food for people. And when we grow food for people that is truly beyond organic and ecologically complex in its arrangement, we are talking about a way of farming that does not exist in nature. And we are talking about what my teachers describe as a recombinant ecology. And I wanted to share with you a reading that helps to explain a little bit of how it is that I have come to understand this vision of what our opportunities are when I look out over a landscape. How do I read that landscape? What are some of the means by which I tune the tuning fork of my mind to be able to receive the information that is here about our history and about a restorative role that we can begin to play? Just a short reading from a book that is a transcription of some talks given by one of my favorite thinkers and teachers who I never met personally, Jay Krishnamurti, and the book is called Total Freedom, a collection of its talks. If freedom were a gift, it would only be for the chosen few, and that would be intolerable. Do you mean to say that you and I cannot think it out and be free? You see, sir, that is what I am saying. We are not serious. To know how one is conditioned is the first step toward freedom. But do we know how we are conditioned? When you make a red mark on your forehead, when you put on the sacred thread, do puja or follow some leader, are not those the activities of a conditioned mind? And can you drop all that? And so that in dropping it, you will find out what is true. That is why it is only to the serious that truth is shown, not to those who are merely seeking security and are caught in some form of conclusion. I am just saying that when the mind is tethered to any particular conclusion, whether temporary or permanent, it is incapable of discovering something new. Okay, so what I'm getting at here is that in order for us to discover the newness of a landscape that has not emerged yet, we need to uncondition our minds from these notions that human beings interacting with landscapes is in some way not a positive act. And that requires a great deal of unconditioning, this tendency to separate ourselves from the reality that we live in the midst of. And the more intimate, personal, and interconnected we become with the places where we live, the better a job we will be doing at creating a good life for ourselves today in terms of more abundant yields, in terms of a better life where we live in a more co-creative fashion that is biologically grounded in our local landscapes, 
and this creating of the new inheritance involves reclaiming places that have been denuded, degraded, and disrespected by previous generations through mismanagement, and by showing once again a deep respect and an attention to how does nature work. We can at present show that these farms can become truly beautiful, ecologically complex, and abundant in yield beyond our imagination. And another reading that I wanted to share relative to this process of designing our way into abundance and what is the way in which we move forward with this methodology of permaculture, I wanted to bring to you some of the research and the influences that I have and that bring in particular some insights to this principle of relative location and right placement. And this reading is from a book called Ecology, A Bridge Between Science and Society by Eugene P. Odom. Odom started the Institute of Ecology at the University of Georgia. This is a book from 1996, and it's basically a textbook for an ecology class. And Odom is a big influence on Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. He really grounds a lot of the systems theory part of ecology and how it relates to setting up human settlements in a manner that makes sense in how ecology works. And so this is from a section in this book that's entitled The Contrast Between Spacecraft and Earth Life Support Systems. For the most part, vital necessities such as oxygen and food are produced on Earth and stored on board, not regenerated as they are here on Earth. He's talking about on a spaceship. Likewise, waste products such as carbon dioxide and urine are chemically stored, not recycled. In contrast, the Earth is bioregenerative. Plants, animals, and especially microorganisms regenerate, recycle, and control life's necessities. Since we did not build the Earth's life support system, and since they involved a complex array of subsystems, we do not have a clear understanding of how the whole thing works. Our first book is called The History, from 400 B.C. 
because the point of history is to learn from our mistakes. And I've been saying for a while that that's how permaculture design is focused on, is learning from our mistakes. And once we've learned what we need to learn, moving forward with the positive action that is informed by what we've learned. And so I think that about wraps up for today what it is I wanted to share with you all. And I look forward to hearing from you your thoughts and feedback about these broadcasts and how you're finding them as far as the insights and perspectives that I'm sharing. We got into some good books today that I encourage you to follow up with. And you also find that on our website, Permaculture New York, I have a page that's underutilized that you might find interesting. It's called Informational Resources. And on that, you'll see that there is a little icon that says Andrew Phelps Library. And if you go there, you will find many, many more books. In addition, I want to say while I'm talking about books and my thoughts on them, I've got a Tumblr account that you'll also enjoy called Dinner with Fowl, where I give some reviews of some of my foundational books for my permaculture courses. Look forward to hearing from you. Be well and enjoy your ride on planet Earth till we talk again. Thank <laughs> you.